Let's turn in our Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 2, please. This is the most important time of the message. Nehemiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Let us, let us pay attention. Let us, let us pay attention to God's word as God speaks to us about the hand of God in our lives. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I ask for the good hand of my God was upon me. Look at verse eight again, verse eight. And the good hand of my God was upon me. Now, whenever you come to an Old Testament text like this, you need to approach it a little differently than a New Testament text. We're not going to find one main propositional statement necessarily, but we find a narrative here. We find a story here. God gives us stories that are true. And we have to ask ourselves, what's the theme of this story? What's the theme of this story? Well, let's ask ourselves, who are the main characters in this story? The main characters in this story are Nehemiah, King Artaxerxes, a pagan king, the leader of the most powerful kingdom of the world at that time. It happened to be Persia in what's modern-day Iran. And God. Do you see God there? Do you see God there as the one that Nehemiah is going to pray to? Do you see God there as the one whose hand is going to be upon Nehemiah? And the main theme of this message is this morning. Will God's hand prevail... Or will the king of pagan Persia prevail? Will the plan of God, as put forth in the Bible, prevail? Or will the king's plan prevail? You see, verse 8, when it says, For the good hand of God was upon me, it really describes for us the main theme of this passage. That is God's hand. What is God's hand upon us like? Can God's hand prevail? Can God's hand rebuild? Can God's hand accomplish what God wants to accomplish? You see, God's hand, God's hand is a symbol of God's authority, God's will, God's desire. It it is God's hand that is moving Nehemiah 
the man who is writing first person this account, he's moving, God's hand is moving Nehemiah to go from Persia to Jerusalem, about an 800-mile trip to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And it is God's hand that moves us to rebuild broken lives around us. It is God's hand that is moving Nehemiah to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem that are in ruins because of the sin of Jerusalem. It is the same hand of God that mercifully steps into our lives and rebuilds our walls that are broken by the sin that has been in our lives. See, God's hand is upon us to rebuild our broken lives so that then God's hand can be moving us to rebuild the broken lives of others. That is the main point of this message. One of corporate America's most endearing slogans. In fact, this year it celebrates 60 years. It was voted the number one advertising slogan of all time. It comes from an insurance company. And it simply says, you're in good hands. Well, this message today, it's about good hands, but not good hands like the insurance company would tell you is there to rebuild your broken home or your broken car or even your broken health, but good hands of God that come to rebuild our broken lives, not through some slick slogan, but through the sure word of God through Nehemiah chapter 2, as we understand this text, as you read this text, as you understand this text. Because in a far greater way, God's good hands rebuild our lives. God's good hand moved Nehemiah to rebuild the broken walls of Jerusalem. And God's good hand moves us to rebuild the broken lives around us, starting with our own broken lives. And that's the theme of today's message. That's the theme of this text. You have to come to a text and understand what is the main theme. This is the theme that is going to help us interpret what is spoken here. And that is this. God's good hand moves us to rebuild broken lives. God's good hand moves us to rebuild broken lives. Now, we know from reading chapter 1 the following. We know that Nehemiah is a Jew in exile. We know that he's a Jew in exile because God's hand, some 140 years earlier, had broken the walls of Jerusalem because of its rebellion against God. And God's hand, some 140 years ago, had taken Nehemiah, actually taken his family, and brought them in exile from Jerusalem 800 miles away to present-day Iran, the Persian Empire. We know that Nehemiah serves in the court of the king. This king's name is Artaxerxes, the second character in our narratives. And we know that he serves Artaxerxes as a cupbearer. All that means is this. He serves the king wine. And we know that as the cupbearer, he would have constant face-to-face contact with the king. We also know this, that four months before this present narrative, Nehemiah had received news from his friends who had come from Jerusalem. And the news was this. The walls of the city of Jerusalem are broken. They are in ruins. The gates have been burned. And we know that Nehemiah, for four months, he has been waiting. He has been thinking. He has been planning. He had many opportunities during those four months to make his request of the king. But he waited. 
and he prayed and he wept. And now in verse 1 of chapter 2, we see here in the month of Nisan, Nisan being the first month of the year, Nisan being the day that the Persians would celebrate as the new year. He says, this is the day I'm going to initiate God's plan. It's going to be this day. And we know that he initiates that plan by deciding to serve the king with a sad face. Do you see that in verse 1? In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that means that he was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. So, Nehemiah, on this day, initiates the plan to rebuild the walls by choosing to enter the king's presence with a sad face. You see, for four months, Nehemiah had entered the king's presence with a happy face. He had played just the happy cupbearer. Here's your wine, king. All the while, his heart was breaking because he knew that his city, the walls of his city were broken down. He knew that his people were suffering. But he waited, he waited, and he waited. And while he was waiting, friends, this is what Nehemiah knew. Nehemiah had studied the Bible. Nehemiah knew God's plan. He knew God's word. He knew that it was God's plan to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. But he waited for the proper time to initiate this plan. And it was the good hand of God that moved him to initiate the plan by coming to the king on this first day of the year, Nisan, and coming to him with a sad face. And he knew that that sad face would cause the king to ask him, hey, what's up? Which it did, and the king did ask him that. And he knew that he would make his request. And, and, and there was a tradition at that time that the king of Persia on this first day of the year was more likely to give you your request than any other day of the year because they celebrated the king's birthday on that first day of the year. So, so Nehemiah wisely said, I'm going to ask him today because you know what? No good Persian king would deny a request from his servants on the day of his birthday. Kind of like the godfather not denying a request on the day of his daughter's wedding. But the point is this. Nehemiah knew his Bible. Nehemiah knew God's plan. And he was now going to initiate God's plan before the pagan king. So the hand of God, God's, God's good hand upon him, moved him to initiate the plan to rebuild the walls. And I believe that's the first truth that God gives us here out of this text. What does it mean to be under the hand of God? Remember, this is what we're talking about here. What does it mean to be under God's hand? Will God's hand prevail? Will God's hand on us see God's plan accomplished? So, so what does it mean to be under God's hand? Well, the first thing it means, guys is that we initiate God's plan. We know God's plan. What is God's plan? God's word. And we initiate God's plan by God's hand. And, and, and as I said, he, he initiated that plan by coming before the king with a sad face. After four months of happy face, today's the day. 
Today's the day for coming to the king with a sad face. I'm going to initiate. I've got God's plan. I've got God's hand on me. And now I'm going to initiate. I'm going to come before the king with a, with a sad face. And he's going to ask me, hey, what's going on? Here's the point. Though Nehemiah initiated this time to make his request, ultimately God initiated it by his good hand. For God is sovereign over all, and he is the one who moved Nehemiah to initiate the plan. And if God's hand is upon us, if the question we're answering today is, what does it mean to be under the the good hand of God? If that's what the question is, and it is in this text, then what does it mean for you and for me to be under God's good hand? Here's what it means. That you, by God's hand, will initiate the plan, what Scripture says, to rebuild the broken lives around you. You will do it. You will initiate it. God's hand will move you. If you know God's word, if you know his plan, he will initiate you so that you will initiate the plan to rebuild lives around you. Now, we know today that this plan is contained in God's word. It's God's salvation plan from Genesis to Revelation. Jesus is the focus. He is the gospel. But this plan, this Bible plan of how to rebuild broken lives, people around us, people in the church, our neighbors, our friends, our family, God will initiate. God will initiate and cause us to initiate. So my question to you is this morning, what is God calling you to initiate? What is God calling you to initiate? As you read his plan, as you read his word, it's clear what we're to do, how we're to help rebuild lives around us. What is he calling you to initiate? Being under the hand of God means that you initiate. Maybe it's a phone call. Maybe it's a phone call to someone in the church to invite him over for dinner, maybe tonight. Uh, maybe you're going to initiate an invitation with your coworker tomorrow for church. Maybe you're going to initiate a good work to help someone who is poor, to visit someone in the hospital. You're going to initiate God's plan, contained in God's word, of rebuilding broken lives. God used his hand to move me to initiate last Sunday. Last Sunday morning, I was standing at a local restaurant at the window there, ordering some Cuban coffee for all the worship team and the setup team. And uh, God's hand just moved me to initiate. There was a, a young man standing right next to me. He, he looked like a very hip young man. He, he had the spiked hair. He had stuff hanging all over his neck and, and wrists and all that kind of stuff. And he was woofing down a pastelito de carne, and he was drinking a, a café con leche. And God's hand just caused me to initiate with him. Say, hey, hey, buddy, what brings you out so early? You know, and he was just so kind. He says, well, I'm a musician. I've been jamming with my friends. I don't know if it was an all-night session. I don't know if this was like the final meal before he went to sleep all day. But I've been jamming with my friends. I said, great. So I introduced myself. He said, what do you do? I said, I'm a pastor. I said, you know, we meet in that school right over there. And I said, hey, here's a card. Why don't you come on over? We've got a, we've got a band. And, and they, they jam. Why don't you come over and meet the band members? And, and maybe, you know, you can talk with them and, and afterwards you guys can jam together. He said, thank you very much. You know, I just showed him where my email was. And so God, he moved me to initiate. He moves us to initiate. God's good hand moves us to initiate. Now, how did Nehemiah initiate? Well, let's look at verse 2. We know that he initiated with a sad face. And we know that this sad face caused King Artaxerxes to say, hey, what up with the sad face? Verse 2. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? 
This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. All right, here's the deal. Remember, we're looking at this as a narrative. Think of this as a, as a movie. Think of this as a story. So you got main character number one, Nehemiah. You got main character now number two, Artaxerxes. He is inserted into the narrative. And he confronts main character number one, Nehemiah. And he says, why is your face sad? The reason that Nehemiah was going to have to give King Artaxerxes for the fact that his face was sad was a reason that could cost Nehemiah his life. Now, here's why that's so important for you and I to remember. Since we know our plan, we know the Bible, we know the following. God called his people, Israel, to live in a place called Judah and Jerusalem in specifics, and that his temple would be there and his presence would be there, and from his people would come a Messiah, a Savior of the world. And Nehemiah knew that, and the people reading this knew that, the people to whom this was written knew that, and we should know that. It's kind of like watching a movie. And you know the good guy's got to rebuild something so that this something can save these folks over here. But there's a bunch of bad guys that are going to keep the good guy from rebuilding that because if he doesn't rebuild that, then this whole nation, country, world, you fill in the blank, is going to die. Only this is a for real story. And it's still going on. So here's the deal. Will our hero, Nehemiah, be able to fulfill God's plan to rebuild God's city so that that, that God's Savior, the Messiah... Nehemiah didn't know who this was. We know who it is now. It's Jesus. He would come 400 years later so that he could come and save the world. And Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes is the bad guy, sort of, kind of, who has, quote, unquote, the power to prevent Nehemiah. And so, and so the client, the, this story is beginning to build an intensity. Nehemiah chooses to come into the king with a sad face. You never come into the king with a sad face. A cupbearer always is supposed to come into the king with a happy face because he's supposed to encourage the king. He's supposed to tell the king how great he is. Okay? Number two, you should never go before the king with a sad face because the king may interpret that sad face as the fact that you don't like his rule over your life. You don't like his rule over your nation. You don't like the fact that he's going to raise taxes. Metaphorically speaking. And you know what? If you got a sad face before the king, you're dissing the king. And if you're dissing the king, are you plotting to overthrow the king? Listen, Nehemiah's sad face could have cost him his life just like that. The king could have said, kill him now. I don't like the way he looks. I don't like the way he's looking at me. And you know what? He may be plotting against me. So when the king says to him, verse 2, why is your face sad seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but a sadness of heart. Let me, let me interpret that for you. Dude, are you plotting against me? You got a problem with me? Okay, you got that? That's why Nehemiah says at the end of verse 2, then I was very much afraid. But God's hand was on Nehemiah, wasn't it? So God's hand was on Nehemiah to initiate the plan, and now God's hand is on Nehemiah to speak courageously. To speak courageously. To speak very, very courageously. Nehemiah knew God's plan. And Nehemiah knew that God's plan ran contrary to the king's plan. Whoa, 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 whoa. Where do you get that, Al? All right, here's the deal. 
Nehemiah knew that he was going to ask the king, remember he'd been praying for four months about this, to send him, on a, first of all, on a leave of absence. Uh, hello, king. I know I got a great job with you. I'm making like six figures. I got a condo on Brickell. I am doing well. But would you send me to a war zone with a city that has no running water and broken walls? King's like, you don't like working for me? What's wrong with you? Oh, and by the way, send me to this city 800 miles away. Give me a leave of absence. Can I just take a leave of absence from serving you, king? And by the way, the city I want to rebuild, this city was one of your enemies 20 years ago. Remember when the 20th year of Artaxerxes reign. 20 years ago, it was one of your enemies, and you're the one that signed an edict, signed a letter that said, don't rebuild the walls. Dude, Nehemiah had to be crazy. He had the job. He was the man. But the hand of God was upon him. And the hand of God caused him to initiate the plan, knowing that it could cost him his life. And the hand of God caused him to speak courageously, knowing that what he was about to say could be interpreted as treason, or at the very least, insubordination. God's hand upon us causes us to know the plan, know scripture, and then to say this plan, the plan to rebuild this city, is what I am going to speak to the very man who decided to not let those walls be rebuilt. Let me invite you to just turn to Ezra chapter 4, just to give you an example of this. Ezra is the book right before Nehemiah. Ezra chapter 4, verses 21 through 23. I want to give you the the proof biblically. Listen, you should be doing this. You should be gobbling up scripture. Who's the main character? What's going on here? Who's against whom? What's the great hero doing? What's the great hero's task? What is his mission? What's the background to this? Isn't this exciting? Because this is about God's hand upon God's people to rebuild God's city. And today it's about God's hand upon us to rebuild broken lives. And we learn that from this text. So Ezra chapter 4 verse 21, Therefore make a decree that these men, that these men are the Jews, be made to cease and that this city, this city is Jerusalem, be not rebuilt until a decree was made by me. The me there is Artaxerxes, the guy that Nehemiah is talking to. This was, this was 20 years earlier at the beginning of Artaxerxes' reign. Nehemiah is talking to him 20 years later. He knows, excuse me, and take care, verse 22, not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? I.e., if you don't do this, I will destroy you. Verse 23, then when the copy of who? King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai, the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them to cease. So what Nehemiah is going to do is Nehemiah is about to stand up with the plan of God in his hand, with the initiation of God in his, in his heart and the word of God in his mouth, and he's going to say to the king, God's hand is on me, God's plan is to rebuild this wall, even though I know your plan was to not rebuild it. You got the tension? (laughs) Yeah. God says, rebuild. Artaxerxes says, don't rebuild. Who's going to win? God says, rebuild your life. Your flesh, the world, and Satan says, no, not going to happen. Who's going to win? If God's hands on you, 
initiate the plan. If God's hands on you, speak courageously. Recently, I had someone come up to me and, uh, and ask me if, they, if I could help them. And this person was Corolla. She's one of our new youth and actually someone that the Lord has saved. And, and we had the privilege to baptize her and her dad, her dad, Mike. By the way, Mike is Jewish by birth, Corolla's stepfather, but really her father has cared for her since she was an infant. And Corolla called me and said, can you help me put together a Bible study at my school, at her high school? I'm going to start a Bible club. I, I went to a teacher, and the teacher's going to sponsor it. We're going to study the book of Romans, and, and I need some help. And I thought, wow, this is going to cost her. This courageous speech is going to cost her. How many of you know Bible clubs are, are not the in thing in high schools? If you want to be really popular, you probably don't want to be the president of the Bible club. Just put horn-ring glasses on me and a sign on my back that says, kick me, okay? You know what Corolla said to me? She said, there are so many kids in, in the school that are so confused and messed up. Let me interpret that for you. There's so many kids whose walls are broken. Their gates are burned by fire. They don't know what to do. They don't know how to interpret life. They've asked me a little bit about God. I don't know much, but I'm trying. They want to know something. I just want to create a context where they can hear God's word. Will you help me? Will you help me? You see, God's hands upon Corolla because Corolla is speaking courageously. How is God calling you to speak courageously? How is God calling you to speak his word? Maybe it's to speak courageously in the break room where you work. Maybe it's to speak courageously uh, in your school like Corolla. Maybe it's to speak courageously to a person that would just be uh, with you. Uh, maybe you go shopping at some place and you see this clerk all the time. You see this cashier all the time. or I don't know. Maybe it's, 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 it's calling a relative. Uh, recently, I was reminded of my relatives. I haven't spoken to them in a while. They, my sister and her husband moved to Vero Beach, and I just don't see them as often. And I just thought, Lord, your hand's upon me to, to initiate a call, and your hand's upon me to ask, can I share the gospel with you again? Can I share the gospel with you again? Now, this courageous speech, it's not foolish speech. Go back to the text. Go back to the text. <clears throat> Look at verse 3 of Nehemiah 2. Courageous speech isn't foolish speech. It's not rash speech. But it's wise speech. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Now he's about to ask something pretty audacious, but he's got enough sense to honor the king on the front end. You know what he's trying to say there? King, I know what I'm about to ask you is going to really probably get you mad. And you're going to think that I'm against you. And you're going to think that I've disregarded your decree 20 years ago to not rebuild this city. I just want you to know. I want you to live forever, dude. <laughs> Long live the king. So it's wise. And look, even more wisdom. Verse, as we continue to read in verse 3. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins? and its gates have been destroyed by fire. You know, what, you know what Nehemiah did right there? He appealed to the king's heart. He says, King, you would be sad too if this summer capital of Susa was broken 
And the graves of your daddy were lying in disrepair. They're in ruin. They've desecrated my daddy's gravesite. And I'd like to go back and rebuild the walls of that city. Do you see the wisdom there? God will give you wisdom to speak God's plan. Even though God's plan is radical and against what the king of this world wants, God will give you wisdom to speak and to make the request and to make the plan known in a way that's winsome and wise. And look what happens. What does the king say? Verse 4. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? This, this is the key point of the whole story. We've been watching the movie for about 45 minutes. They've built up the story. This is now the shootout at the OK Corral. All right. This is the moment of truth. It's one thing to ask the king, hey, king, I'm sad because my daddy's grave is desecrated 800 miles away in Jerusalem. But now the king says, all right, so what are you going to do about it? And what does Nehemiah do? Oh, look at this. Look at this. What does Nehemiah do? What are you requesting? Verse 4. So I prayed to the God of heaven. (laughs) Now, wait a second. I thought, Nehemiah, you'd been praying for four months to the God of heaven. Yes, I had. And I'd been praying about when to initiate. And every time I was about to initiate, every time I was about to go serve the king his wine, his good Merlot, you know, I was going to go in with a sad, grumpy face. And right as I got to the door, I went, no, not today. Hey, king. My heart was breaking. Hey, king. How's it going? But now I've been praying for four months, and today's the day. So I go in with a grumpy face. And the king says, hey, what's up? And I, and I make my appeal. I want to go. My, my daddy's grave has been desecrated. Now he says, so what do you want me to do? The most powerful man in the world. With one word, he could do whatever he wanted. There was no Congress, no president to be voted on. This is the king. His word was law. And Jeremiah or Nehemiah prays. But notice this very carefully in verse 4. So I prayed to the God of heaven. And look at verse 5. And I said to the king, and I'm going to add on earth. Do you see how God has set up the contrast? Do you see how God has set up the tension? Who's going to win? The God of heaven to whom Nehemiah just prayed, whose plan is rebuild the walls, or the king on earth whom Nehemiah is about to request to rebuild the walls, whose plan was don't rebuild the walls. Do you see it? Isn't that exciting? This text speaks to me today that if God's hand is on me, that I'm going to initiate the plan that I'm going to speak courageously. And the third point, I am going to pray and take action. What does it mean to have God's hand upon you? It means you pray and you take action. I love what Jose said last week. Nehemiah was a man who never acted without praying, but never prayed without acting. Nehemiah, was a man who never prayed without acting, but never, excuse me, never acted without praying, but never prayed without acting. If God's hands on you, man, you are going to pray, and you're going to pray, and you're going to pray. Last Friday, we began our first staff prayer on Friday mornings. We used to, if you're a guest here, we used to meet every Friday morning from 6 to 7.30 in the morning as a church to pray. After eight years of keen discernment, I realized that maybe is not a good time to invite the whole church to pray. So now we're going to move it to Wednesday nights and incorporate it with our home groups. But we said to our team, our pastoral team, let's keep praying every Friday morning, just the four of us. 
from 6 to 7.30. And let's do this. Let's invite, every week we'll rotate them through, we'll invite one home group leader. One home group leader. There's seven home groups. So last Friday, it was Kevin Abeg. And and he comes on in, and, and we write down the names of everybody in the home group. So Abeg home group, we prayed for each one of you. And we say, God, show us their needs. God, where are they struggling? God, who needs the job? Lord, how are they doing relationally? Oh, Father, give us discernment. And for an hour and a half, we prayed and we sought God and we interceded. And then we acted. It moved me to act. I made phone calls this week to people that I wouldn't have otherwise. Because a man who's, who has the hand of God upon him, he prays and he acts. He prays and he acts. He knows scripture. He knows God's plan. And he knows that God's plan oftentimes is opposed to the world's plan. Don't don't you love, I love what it says in verse 5. Look at verse 5. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, then send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Hang for a second on these two terms. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, listen carefully. When you pray and know God's plan, his word, then you're able to act with boldness. Nehemiah knew that the God of heaven was pleased with this action to rebuild the walls. Nehemiah knew that he had favor with the God of heaven because he was a Jew, a son of Abraham, and God had made covenant promises to Abraham. And so when he goes before the king, he says these words, and they're good words to say, wise words to say to a guy who could have you killed in a moment. King, if it pleases you, if I found favor in your sight, I know this is pretty audacious, Let me go back and rebuild the walls. But he already had God's will. He knew what pleased God. He had God's favor. So today, dear friends, what this passage tells you and me, what it should tell you, read it, let it tell it to you this week, is that when you pray, when you know God's word, you can walk around with bold, decisive action. Because you know, guys, you know what pleases God. You know what pleases God to serve others. You know what pleases God to give to the church? You know what pleases God to say no to yourself and yes to your family, to your wife, to your children? You know what pleases God to be part of a home group and give and give and give when you're exhausted on a Wednesday night? You know what pleases God to come early in the morning and serve? You know what pleases God to share the gospel even when people around you may mock you? And you know you have God's favor in Jesus. Nehemiah had God's favor because he was a Jew. He was a son of Abraham. We, we have the one who fulfilled the promise given to Abraham. So what does it mean to have God's hand on me? It means I pray and I act knowing that, that, that I have God's will, what pleases him here in the word, and I've got God's favor in Jesus Christ. And, and that's the last point. That's the last point. The favor that we have comes through Jesus Christ and him alone. Look at verse 8b. Look at verse 8b. Nehemiah says this, And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. The good hand of my God was upon me. If you read this narrative in more detail, 
you will find that Nehemiah asked the king for letters, letters that will, that will give him authority when he goes back to Judah. And, and you will find that he asked the king for a letter that will give him the wood he needs to build the walls. And he's going to need those letters. He's going to need that wood. But the reason he receives all that he needs to rebuild the walls is because God's good hand is upon him. And God's good hand is upon us only in Christ. Only in Christ. Guys, this is what the Bible teaches us. This is what Nehemiah knew, that he had God's good hand on him because he was a son of the covenant, a son of Abraham, a Jew. He knew that God's hand had destroyed Jerusalem 140 years earlier. He knew that God's hand had taken his father or maybe his grandfather and grandmother and put them in exile. He knew God's hand had kept him in exile in Persia. But he knew ultimately the hand of God was good toward him because he was a son of the covenant. And this very hand that destroyed Jerusalem was now taking him and putting, bringing him, moving him back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. How do we know that God's hand is good? How can you have any confidence that this passage is for you? Maybe God's hand is the kind of hand that is on me to destroy my walls because I'm rebellious. I'm like Jerusalem. I'm that city that rebelled and disobeyed God and he crushed her. Well, you know what? The Bible says that's what we deserve. That's what we deserve because we are rebellious because we have sinned against God. But God's hand, and notice in verse 8b, it says God's good hand. That word good there in verse 8b, God's good hand, that Hebrew word can also be translated gracious hand. See, God's good hand, God's gracious hand are the nail-scarred hands of Jesus Christ, whose walls were burned, whose city was crushed, who was taken into the ultimate exile of death for you. For you. His hands rebuild your walls and then move you to go rebuild the walls, the broken walls, the broken lives of people around you. But I must warn you. I must warn you of something. If you do a study of hands, God's hands, and do that study, grab this Bible and read it and pray over it, and you do a study of the hand of God, type in whatever you want to type into or whatever concords, hand of God, you know what you'll find? You'll find that God's hand, God's hand is extended over everybody. Listen, man, we're in good hands, all right? Everybody's in good hands. Everybody's in God's hands. King Artaxerxes was in God's hand, but not everybody receives the grace of God because the hand of God being holy on an unholy man is heavy upon him. Hebrews 10.31 says, Hebrews 10.31 says, it, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 
And, and, and Psalm 32, verses 3 and 5. Psalm 32, verses 3 and 5 say, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of a summer. Of summer. Imagine a hot day in Miami. No water, no AC, and you're out, you're out in it day after day. No relief. You're just wiped out. See, the hand of God is only gracious to the man or woman who acknowledges their sin and repents of their sin and comes to the nail-scarred hands of Jesus and receives forgiveness. Then it's a gracious hand. Then it's the kind of hand that moves Nehemiah from Persia back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls rather than the hand that crushed the walls 140 years earlier and moved his grandparents from Jerusalem into exile to Persia. Which hand will it be for you? Which hand will it be for you? Will it be the heavy hand of judgment or the gracious hand of blessing? Listen, God's hand on you is either going to be a terrifying thing or it's going to be a tremendous thing. I pray that it would be tremendous so that God's good hand would move you to rebuild broken lives as you experience the same rebuilding in your life. Run to him, dear friends. Find your rest in Christ, in the nail-scarred hands broken for you. Let's pray. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you would take this word, Lord, and that you would give encouragement. And if you could just be as still as possible, now is, is a time to be still before the Lord. Listen, God's here, guys. If Nehemiah was to respect an earthly king, how much more should we respect the king of kings and the God of heaven? Just listen carefully. I'm aware that in a, a group like this, there are many that are sitting here saying, Al, God's hand is about to squash me. God's hand is heavy on me because I am sinning and I can't get out of it and I don't really care. I'm afraid of God's hand. I've been running from God's hand. And I believe that this message is here not to condemn you, dear friend, but to convict you and then to set you free. So, Father, I pray for those who are sitting in these chairs with shattered walls. The gates of their hearts are burned to the ground. They've been hurt and re-hurt, and they've hurt others. They've been sinned against. They've sinned against. They've been used, and they have used. Oh, God of heaven, whose plan is to rebuild their walls, come and oppose the God of this world and the God of my own flesh and my desires and my passions and the God and, and the God of opinion. Oh, and oppose them and rebuild. May your will be done. May your plan come to fruition. Oh, good hand of God, gracious hand of God, Jesus, come and convict those who have just laughed and mocked at your hand. Oh, God, let them see that your hand is poised over them, ready to squash and to judge. Oh God, you gave me this illustration this week of, of a horror movie and, and how we watch these horror movies and, and, and we see the, the person on the screen, they're about to go into a room and terrible things are going to happen to them in that room and they have no idea. 
And that makes the tension of a horror movie. And that's what it's like now for some people. They don't understand. They're about to go into a room and terrible things are going to happen to them. God, God, I pray you have mercy. They, we deserve terrible things to happen to us. Our walls to be burned and us to be taken in exile. But in Jesus, you give us mercy and grace. Let them see it and turn. Turn to the gracious hand of Christ. Nail-scarred hand of Christ. And oh God, as you do that, I want you to know, Lord, take my life by your hand and move me to rebuild the broken lives around me. I want to give my life to that. As a church, we give our lives to this. In Jesus' name. I just... This is a holy moment, folks. We're going to stand and sing a song in the presence. And I want you to run to God. If you need prayer from us, I'll be here. Corey will be here. Jose um, will just be here. But you know what? You may just need to pray with someone right next to you. But, but pray to the God of heaven to have mercy on you as we sing this song. Let's stand and sing in the presence.